Hi guys, my name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. One week of self-employment done and guys, it's been absolutely amazing. For those of you who don't know, first and foremost, it means you're skipping episodes in this podcast, which is not wise, (laughs) but I resigned from traditional media about a week ago week ago no seriously i was on radio in kenya for nine years and last week i just kind of closed that chapter and yo i have in this past week experienced such a high level and genuine peace of mind i haven't experienced that in about four years yeah i'm sleeping well My skin is glowing. Um, But seriously, though, I have time to spend with my family, to spend with my sisters and husband. And I have time to go for meetings. This week, I'm hosting a MasterCard Foundation event. And we're doing that in collaboration with the government of Kenya. The president of Kenya is going to be there. The president of mastercard foundation is going to be there so it's been pretty hectic like going for meetings and preparing for that so i have time to really commit to such things and prepare adequately for them um i oh my god what i've loved is having time to create now i've always loved creating stuff um it's where i get my high it's where i get my happiness but i think for like the nine years i didn't have time to do that and then towards the end i was resenting radio so much so i was in this funk and y'all know if you're creative when you're in a funk it's really hard to step out and create anything even if you have all the time you're just there like "Ah, i hate this (laughs) so it's been really good to be able to you know create again and just to feel like me again. There have been two points where I felt a bit anxious. Um, the first was when I was doing my finances. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, 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 wow. Every month is not going to be like a given check coming in. Whether I give 100% or 5%, I'm getting this paycheck. So I was just like, wow. But I did this thing that really helps me. And I don't know, it could work for you. I catch negative thoughts. So when I have a negative thought, I catch it really quick before it gives birth to 10,000 other really dark, really negative thoughts. Yeah. So I quickly caught that thought and started thinking, yo, it's going to be an opportunity for you to, you know, save and to really scale down and to learn the skill, which is really good for life. Of course, I've been saving before, but now (laughs) gonna have to do it on steroids, right? And then the second time I got a bit anxious was on Friday, but this was kind of good because I was doing a launch of my new podcast, guys. So I have a new podcast that is launching on the 25th of June. It's called Perspective. So purse, like where you put your money, perspective. It's a play on the word. And it's a podcast that's going to be talking on gender equality, everything around it, especially for the African context. Now, what's great about this podcast is that it's a live recorded podcast, meaning you can be there. So it's going to be on the 25th of June at 6 p.m. at K1 Clubhouse in Nairobi. You are invited. Entrance is absolutely free. Come through 
bring as many guys they are in your life because I want it to be a safe space where men and women can talk about living in this man's world, in this patriarchal society. And we can share experiences, share stories, and hopefully at the end of the night, learn something and unlearn something. So this week on my Instagram, which you can follow me on, that's at Adele Onyango, I'm going to be announcing our panelists at this first episode of Perspective. There are four guys and girls who are so powerful. They really are new Africa, I would call it that. Like they represent this new energy, this vibrance, this wanting to make Africa a better space, make it thrive, you know, regardless of how complex a conversation can get. They're always willing to dive right in. So I'm really excited because it took me a long time to pick out the panelists. But I think I did a good job. I think I did a good job. So 25th of June at K1 Clubhouse in Nairobi, Parklands area. We start at 6 p.m. So be on time and it's absolutely free. Anywho, but this is not perspective. This is uh, Legally Clueless. So I want to dive right in to today's 100 African story. And this one is really interesting because it's an African who grew up not in Africa. And I went to her home to record this particular story. It was just so interesting. Her name is Chiki. Chiki is Nigerian and she was raised in the UK. She settled down in Kenya and she is a dancer, but she's also really, really passionate about women empowerment and just using her art, which is dance, to bring about change. When I approached her and I asked her, yo, I'm doing this 100 African stories thing, and you are a great storyteller, so I'm pretty sure you have some stories to share. And she was like, where do I start? Which story do you want? She had 10,000 stories and we had to like single down on one. What I love about this particular story is that it really explained to me something that I've been wondering about every time I watch the news. Every time I watch the news about um, London, about places in the UK, they're talking about having a crisis around knives you probably felt this too when you'd watch all the stories i'd be like this is really sad but it's also really peculiar to me i can't really understand it well chicky's story is about that one time that she jumped in front of a knife a hundred african stories there is no proper life that you live in university as a musician if i constantly just walked around feeling sorry for myself i'm never gonna get anything done uh, there's a bit of frustration in between all of that i've been breaking my back for this company therapy is not for the weak or for the crazy stories from africa hi um i'm cheeky kuruka um and i'm repping the green white green nigeria itself so my background, not many people know, is working with mental health. So in the UK, there's a big connectivity, and I'm sure probably there is all over the world, between homelessness and mental health, because often people who have some form of mental ill health, who can't manage their living, who don't necessarily have family to support them, end up homeless. So we used to have a service in the UK which used to have um, people who suffered from some form of mental ill health and had experienced homelessness. First of all, being in the UK as a black person or as a mixed person is a, is a really unique experience. 
somehow you end up being connected to other black, especially other African people, just because of your sameness. If you're 5% of the population, you will find people who look, who think, who have similar cultural values to you. So I remember this Congolese guy coming into our service. It was a live-in service. It used to be 40 guys, 50 guys who used to live under one roof. And most of them had some, either some form of schizophrenia, some form of psychosis. Um, it was normally some form of psychosis. So I remember being super happy when this amazing African guy came in. And I just thought he was brilliant because I really understood him. He reminded me of all the value systems that I had experienced at home, be it respect, be it the way you treat women. I just, I just really, really liked him really, really liked him and really, really understood him. Even the Africanness, the kind of like male African response often of volume, you know, like <laughs> not necessarily like having a point, just getting louder for the sake of getting, getting louder. So when he used to do that, a lot of my British counterparts used to feel really intimidated, whereas it was context driven for me. I'd seen that happen at home. I'd seen that happen in my circles. It was never like, oh, this guy is, you know, going off the chain for me i was just like mm, he's a congolese man it's pretty normal he in particular suffered from uh schizophrenia and the type of schizophrenia that he used to suffer from was like race-based race-based kind of experiences of paranoia so he used to feel as if when he was walking down the road people were calling him the n-word mm -hmm. um people would um be saying calling him a monkey he used to hear monkey voices a lot and actually it's a really common um paranoia connected with schizophrenia and race yeah. that you get when you're in a minority in a country. The way in which the service was set out is anytime guys were in a group together, you'd have to have one of us there, a member of staff there, cause violence was common. Someone might get some form of attack and you'd have to be there in order to monitor it. We had people who had suicidal thoughts and tendencies. So uh, that might happen. So you'd always have to have someone there who had like a direct link to the police and a direct link. So we'd walk around with a walkie talkie and we'd have a direct link. So he was having a moment of race-based paranoia whilst we were sitting down and eating together. And directly opposite him was someone is an Italian ex-mafia member. So he was, um, he, had, he also had suffered from some form of like trauma as a result of being in the mafia, had left and had become homeless. So he, they were looking at one another and there is something that you can see when someone is going through um, some form of hallucination, you can normally see, especially if you know the client really well, you can normally see it in the way they move their eyes. You can see that they're responding to something that I, not, I can't see or they're hearing something that I can't hear. So I could see already that he was having some form of experience that I wasn't privy to. It was just unfortunate that he was sitting opposite this ex-mafia member. So he started becoming a bit aggressive. He was saying, what are you looking at? Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. And this ex-mafia member, he wasn't really the type of person to back down from a fight. As aggressions go, next thing you know, this guy, the Congolese guy, is standing up with a knife about to charge at this mafia member. And in my head, I thought three things. I thought, if this guy leaves, this is gonna bleed into every stereotype that already exists about black people in the UK, violent, aggressive, knife crime, so on and so forth. No one is gonna take time 
to realize this guy is suffering from something genuine. Mm. That was my first concern. My second thing was, I felt like I understood his cultural perspective well enough to know that although he was having a hallucination, there would be some hard lines that he probably wouldn't cross. Mm aka touching a woman that was so driven like drilled into him that you don't touch a woman i was i was fairly certain although just let me put a kind of like a side note because this was very stupid of me i wouldn't advise anyone else to do this because anyone who has some form of hallucination can act greatly different from how you know them to act People who you love can do things that you never thought they would do and it's really not their fault. But in my naive 22-year-old state of mind, I felt like I knew him well enough that he would not uh, ever lay a hand on a woman. And the third thing that I thought was, this mafia guy was, okay, so this Congolese guy was tiny. He was stocky, but he was tiny. The mafia guy was six foot something <laughs> and massive. Like, And then I just thought... God bless this guy because even with a knife, he's going to lose this fight. Like even, it doesn't matter, unless he's crawling under legs and tables. So me being the kind of character that I am, I decided to jump in front of, in between the knife and the two men. Thank Jesus, my assessment was right. And I could just see something change. I think he was still hearing the voices. It wasn't like this amazing, miraculous moment where he wasn't hearing voices anymore. But I definitely think he could see, because often when you're, you're hearing voices, it depends where you are in your point of uh, kind of like illness um, and how like far gone you are. But he was at a point where it was manageable voices. Like he could tell the difference between like what is happening right here and what is plausibly a voice if you were to ask him questions about it. So him seeing me made him stop and slow down and drop his knife and uh, yeah, sit down. And then obviously after that, I had to call um, kind of like the police to carry them both out of the space. I just sat in the middle until the police came. They both were removed from the dining area. Now, you try going and telling that story to your dad. <laughs> So after that, I was put on, um, not disciplinary, I was, I was, I was warned by the, because the rule is, is that you can't put yourself or anyone mm. else at risk. That's kind of like rule number one, if you're working for that kind of service, because yeah. it puts the service at risk. If you injure yourself, they have to pay out an insurance or whatever. So I was in big trouble at this point for mm. making that decision. By the way, I still don't regret it. Someone would have ended up in jail if it wasn't for me or someone could have ended up dead. Like, I, I still don't regret it, but I do understand why they put these protections in place. Now, I went home and explained this story <laughs> to my dad. My dad was like, he was hearing voices. How do you know the voices were telling him to kill you? <laughs> it didn't go down well. It was really bad. Actually, for a while, my dad insisted on kind of like calling me sporadically during the day to make sure, like during the work day, to make sure that I wasn't jumping in front of any knives or, you know, doing anything like that. But there's something about being a minority that just makes you feel like I'm responsible for the image and for the protection of people who look like me. I'm not saying it's the right thing, but when you hear so much negative media about people who look like you and when you hear so much negative press about people that look like you some of it being 
just cultural differences. There is something that gets into you, not necessarily jumping in front of a knife. I know Adele, you ain't jumping in front of no knife. <laughs> like, <laughs> Adele's running. <laughs> but there is something that gets into you that makes you feel like this story is going to be my story. It's somehow. It's going to be another statistic that when I go for a job interview, people will see. It's going to be another storyline that people will see. So it's just, I, I guess, being a minority, we need to do better. Why did I start working in this space? Anyone who has studied metaphysics and philosophy as a degree will know there's not many job prospects. So <laughs> when, when I saw an advert in the paper, I was like, yes, that sounds, sounds all right, mental health. I like drama, like that will do. Literally, that's how I started working in men mental health. And within a week, I just knew I was rightly placed because I was doing community outreach work. I was connecting people who were ill with the local community. I was, like I just knew by sheer luck, I'd fallen into a space that I was comfortable with. That's why. After, why did I go back? Because I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. Like, and the thing is, in my head, everyone was making such a big deal out of it. In my head, I'd done my own risk assessment. Okay, now I'm 10 years older, it was a dumb risk assessment, and I understand why everyone had a problem with it. But at the time, I was just like, what's the problem? I was so power to the people, like I could have had it tattooed on my forehead. So like, for me, I just felt like I didn't die. No one died. It's fine. Just keep it moving. Everyone needs to just relax. So that's why I didn't see any reason of not, I knew I was in trouble, but I thought that trouble I could handle. So yeah, I could have been in worse trouble. So that, and what did it change in me? I think at the time it made me realize that you really do have different types of people. You do have fight or flight. And it scared me how my immediate reaction is just fight. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily mean fight as in getting into a, like a physical fight. That might be protect, that means well. But my immediate reaction is not run. Mm. It's to try and stay and do something about it, which scared me to, to an extent because I was just like, where does that end? Mm. If it's not a knife, it's a gun. If it's not a gun, and if I'm the type of person who's gonna put myself at risk of danger because of something that I believe is right, mm. then man, like that could end up really, really bad. But then it also made me feel like, I'm a boss bitch. Like, <laughs> it really made me feel like, if I'm not scared of much, like, I can really, so it also on the flip side made me feel quite empowered because I was like, I really feel like I, I can handle myself. I really feel like I don't need someone to validate my decision making process. Mm -hmm. At the time, everyone thought I was stupid, but I still left feeling like I understood. And still now I, I acknowledge it was stupid, but I left feeling like I know why I did what I did. And I'm still the type of person that if, someone were to attack my friend I will jump in the middle and I will feel nothing like it's fine I think on a broader scale I learned that being a minority is tough if you're not in the power position so if you're a black person you're in the minority in the UK in America where you don't have the economic resources in the main where you don't and I come from a middle-class family and still the message trickles down because people don't know where what family you come from people just see what you look like and make judgments and assessments made on that so it really made me feel like 
first of all, who am I trying to connect myself with? People that I don't necessarily know, people that I don't necessarily agree with, people might have really messy value systems that I don't connect to, but just in virtue of the fact that I'm a minority and you're a minority, we're somehow connected. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how good or powerful or helpful that is. I would rather be connected to people who share what's important to me, whatever you look like. Mm -hmm. If you're into music, if you're into justice, if you're into mental health, I'd much rather that be my clique than we happen to look the same way. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we will ride for each other. Mm -hmm. And it's a natural thing that's going to happen if you're all treated poorly as a minority. But we need to fight against that grouping that might not be the most natural way of kind of grouping people together. This is going to sound really skewed. Please bear in mind, <laughs> I worked for mental health. Please bear in mind, I'm a little bit ratchet. <laughs> please, bear, please bear in mind, there's many. I'm from London. You know, we don't have um, gun issues in London, but knife crime is, is, is a thing that's it's really big. So just bear these things in mind when I tell you six. All of them are very different circumstances. I still feel like in the main, I wouldn't change most of those scenarios. I, and and I, I also feel like my dad always told me, if you see a knife for too long, it's not coming for you. And I've really always lived by that. Like if you're waving a knife around, I'm probably okay. I'm not, I'm not saying people should live by that. You might not be okay, you know, but if, most of the time with the stories that you hear where people get stabbed, it was out of the blue. Like, you didn't see it coming, yeah. you know. As long as I can see the knife, it's okay. Now when you start being shifty and your hands are in your pockets, that's when I have more of a problem. But if I can see the instrument, then it's, it's, it's better. At least it's better. <laughs> I wouldn't jump in front of a gun. Just call me Cheeky the Knife Jumper. Like, <laughs> that's, that's my new tag name now. Yeah, no, I've jumped into, in front of a fair few knives. But they've all been, it sounds worse than, if you hear in the individual stories, which you don't have time to, they're not that bad. They're really not that bad. One is when a guy tried to chat me up. If when I said no, set, put out a knife, and then I still said no, and he stayed with his knife. Idiot. The third one was when we had, um, uh, there was a dispute between a husband and a wife, again, within the mental health service. And... Uh, the husband was coming for, for, and they were both homeless and she had just had a baby mm. so she was holding the baby but she was it was like she had a massive coat on and the baby was wrapped up mm. so he brought out the knife but he didn't realize she had a baby so I jumped in to remove the baby in Kenya um, <laughs> yeah so we were being mugged on Waiaki way and like so like yeah a guy came to try and mug us on Waiaki Way. So at first I was just kicking my bag down and like all three of us in the car, London girls. And honestly, there is really something about being born and bred in London. Like your, your, your threshold is just probably a bit different. So it wasn't just me, you know, my friend jumped out of the back too. And then is when he, she jumped out that he turned around and had like a little blade. So then I jumped in, but I jumped in to pull her back. That was on Waiaki Way. Way. I, okay, someone was having suicidal attempts, many suicide attempts. It was a man, and he had been threatening for a long time to cut his private area because, in the men, man, that's the quickest way mm. to bleed out. So, 
um, we were in his room. So again, in the mental health service, you'd have to patrol mm. people's rooms. So I went to his room and I saw that he had a knife and I saw that he had blood on his arms. So I could see that probably the next place that he was going to was his groin. So I pushed him down and then lay on top of him mm. and then removed the knife. I'm surprised I haven't been fired from all of these things, you know? <laughs> like, I'm now, look, looking back, I just got a lot of slapped wrists. And the final one, now I'm trying to think, <laughs> was when I was in a club, it was in a bar, some, some chick was eating. There was a guy and a girl, and, and, and I was with a group of girls. Friends of, but only one of them was my friend. Some of them were friends of friends. So the girl had been going on and on. We were in a restaurant. We had been some two other places before her. God had been going on and on about how her boyfriend's this awesome guy. It seemed like they were kind of new mm-hmm. into a relationship. You know how it is, like mm-hmm. honeymoon. Yeah. yeah. Oh. oh, he's so nice. He's so lovely. He treats me so well. Oh. So I'm just there, like, oh, that's nice. We ended up in the club and we saw the same guy kissing a girl. I have never seen anything like it because the chick thought she was in Game of Thrones or something because she ran, she got a knife and was running like, attack, you know, like, (laughs) that one again. And and it was funny because he was at another side. We had been sitting up on a level. So she saw him from up on the level. So when she jumped off the level, he still hadn't seen that there was a knife coming for him. She still hadn't seen. So I just ran after her and pulled her back and pulled the knife off of her. And then she was just crying, how could he do this to me, cheeky? I was just like, was it worth going to jail for? Like, was it really worth going to jail for? But that's a lie, because now that I think of it, there was a few times in school as well. Like now, (laughs) now I'm thinking of these stories, but please understand London, our issue is knives. Our issue is knives. And it's not, that's like, knives are the issue because we don't have a gun we don't have guns in London okay the recent thing is acid but my entire upbringing it was knives and it was never how the media portrayed it like um, it was normally just an, a moment of frustration the quickest thing to you is a knife or a fork or whatever and attack you know that was in the main of course you have some people who walk around with knives but you also need to understand there's like I was saying about my first story black incarceration is a problem so if you are a minority group and you don't feel protected you do end up finding a way to protect yourselves mm-hmm. and we don't have guns mm-hmm. so the knife is the next best option not that it's okay not that it's justifiable people lose their lives it's sick it's wrong but i think i always think rather than judging it's about understanding why this mm-hmm. issue exists in the first place my ex was I remember going to court because he was found with knives in his boot. And it was such an emotional moment for me because only six months prior, he'd been in intensive care because he'd been jumped by some kids in the local area from another... We have this thing called postcode warfare, trying to pretend that we're American in, like, a stupid. So he'd been jumped by some kids because he'd gone to visit his grandma and he happened to be in a postcode and people knew him from accruing another postcode. So they jumped him, beat him up to the point of intensive care. So that thing really messed him up. So he started walking around with a knife because when it was, like reported to the police please treat it as ah, this is gang versus gang whatever they didn't put any real psychological support 
involved. They didn't really ever really treat him like a victim. They did treat the other guys like criminals, but they didn't really address the core issue that, well, now what's this guy going to do? If you're not really making it... And, and let's, they didn't really get to the root of it. They were just like, look, these few boys have done this. But even if you arrest these few boys, postcode warfare still yeah. exists. Yeah. So in the main, when people were carrying around knives, it was just a lack of understanding of what is really happening in the streets, a lack of understanding of how certain races feel uh, victimized or vilified or anything like that, and then picking a stupid, pathetic way to try and protect themselves. Catch our next African stories in the next episode. Man, Chicky is quite the storyteller. She's jumped in front of not one, not two, but six knives. And those are only the ones that she can remember. What I love about the 100 African Stories feature is that I get invited by these amazing people into their homes, right? Into their safe spaces, and they get to share their stories with you and I. So the sound might not sound as crisp as it does when I'm in the studio, but you get the feeling that you're in somebody's safe space. And that's really powerful. So I'm also working on trying to figure out how you can get to share your African story on this feature. So give me some time. I'm trying to crack that all by myself. <laughs> Once I do, I'm going to give you details about that. But of course, next week, there'll be another dope 100 African story. And that's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode. <laughs>